The disability movement famously argues nothing about us without us. It's a provocation that goes to the heart of how society makes decisions. Too often, expertise, expediency or willful ignorance are used to justify policies that leave out those who are the subject of those policies. The autistic community is changing this approach around the world. Too often, autistic people have been studied by researchers in ways that exercise power over them. This is now changing, and one of the most powerful forces for change has been the rise of autistic researchers amongst the academic community. These lived experience researchers are helping to lead a new research practice that is establishing fundamentally new ways of understanding autism. Today's Changemaker Chat is with one of the world's leading autistic researchers, Wen Lawson. Wen has battled with how scientists see autistic people. It led him to enter the world of research and turn that space upside down. We talk about his journey, and he shares not only what his life has been like as an autistic person, but also what it has been like to have lived these experiences across gender, sharing his reflections of before and after he came to identify as a trans man. This is a powerful and honest conversation about the complex and relational nature of identity and the politics of being able to lead. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, campaigners and policymakers so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. So, Wen Lawson, it is a pleasure to welcome you to Changemakers. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and I'm excited because I reckon you've got a story that's, a, that's quite distinct and it will be of great interest to many of our social change people and also others who are interested in how change occurs. But I want to start, as, as we always do, by asking the question – what kind of change maker are you when you think about wanting to make change in the world and causing change in the world, the need for that? What comes to mind? What, how does that work for you? Oh, dear. On so many levels. The first level for me is that just a place where I could be myself and I didn't have to put on airs and graces and mask who I am. People all the time seem to constantly have to apologize for who they are uh, Liz and I a friend brought me here today we were doing it in the car it was like oh sorry I didn't mean to do that no I'm sorry no 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 I really am sorry yes I'm me too there's a place for saying sorry I know but as women and I lived as a woman for 62 years of my life before I changed into the gender I really am meant to be women especially apologize 
uh, it's like apologise for living, apologise for existing. And uh, I guess that's gone on for centuries and it's a leftover thing, but you don't need to apologise for being who you are. But, but I guess creating a world where you don't need to apologise requires quite a lot of change to be made. It's massive. It's massive. It's on all levels because, especially in the Western world, really, there are all these levels of power that, as, as females in particular, we're robbed from. We don't get equal pay. You don't get so many of the opportunities that, that males get. It's not an attack on male. I am very thankful to be male because I know that's who I am now. But going through all those processes of being a mum and looking after your children, putting them first and everything else, it's like um, I remember going to the post office to pick up, this was in the UK, pick up what they called family allowance and I bought myself a Mars bar. Oh, dear me, I felt terrible. I ate it when the children weren't looking. I had four of them that I was kind of walking with a couple and pushing another couple. We had four kids then and... Yeah, I felt so bad. Why would you need to feel bad about having a Mars bar? Because I didn't share it. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yes, lots of, of ways that change need to, need to happen. And I was um, diagnosed at the age of two as being intellectually disabled. Or actually, the words they used were intellectually subnormal. Oh, wow. Yeah, subnormal. And I, I didn't know what they were on about as a two-year-old, but that's... Certainly, I heard those words echoed quite a lot after that. And it was only because I was very delayed in speaking. I didn't talk till I was closer to five. I was still in nappies, way past fourth birthday. They sent me to school, but I didn't do well. So they kept me home for another year. So I was six by the time I started school. And most kids start at the age of five, I think. But anyway, that's going back too far. But um, all those things that go on in our lives as, as we're growing older all have an impact from being very young, a small child to teenager to adult, and we keep those things going. So we need to start change really early with with little people in accepting and listening to who they are and what they're saying about who they are, because we're not good at listening, I think. Yeah. And, I mean... As we're going to talk about in this discussion, one of the profound spaces in which you've worked is as an autistic researcher and and person, right, as an advocate for autistic people. And before we get into the how you do that and all the change that you've made across across your lifetime, I actually uh, I definitely want you to talk about how that emerged for you. Tell us about your story about finding out that you're autistic and, and the journey that you went on. Thank you. So I grew up with that hanging, it's a strange thing to say, hanging over me, because there was nothing hanging over me, it's just a, a metaphor. But the understanding that I'm not very <laughs> you know, just, Let's just pick up on that. That's one of the beauties of always meeting and talking with you and many autistic people is the literalism, right? Yeah, There's so yeah. many things that neurotypical people say that are completely confusing to they a non-neurotypical are. mind. I just wanted to pick that up in yeah, case yeah. listeners didn't yeah. get it. No, I, every time a metaphor is used, a lot of them I've come to understand quite well. I've written a book, a, a dictionary of metaphor. I had to study for it, but... Yeah, some of the phrases people use, I actually have to decode all the time and make sense of them before I can respond. So every time language is used when people talk in a conversation, if they use metaphorical language, language that is meant to be representative of something rather than actually taken 
as said, I have to decode all that and um, process that in my head before I can respond. And um, I am much better at lots of metaphors these days, but even so, whenever I hear them. So having this definition of what was supposed to be me came with me, and I hanging over my head is the term I used, comes with me into all my medical records and everything. So no one expects a lot from me because I'm intellectually subnormal or disabled and um, cognitively challenged is another term. But as I grew up and my behaviours were very, very different to my sisters and brother, again, I was taken to a doctor seen by a psychiatrist at 17 who told my mother that uh, I was schizophrenic. And I have schizophrenic friends. It's not the label, or it's not the people. It's the fact that I'm not schizophrenic. I was actually autistic, but that was overlooked. So living with uh, educationally disabled, cognitively challenged, lots of learning difficulties. I'm dyslexic, dyspraxic, and I'm ADHD. But those things were not uncovered till later. I was 42 before I got my diagnosis of autism. So I had 25 years in and out of, they called them mental institutions, really, and on antipsychotic medication, which is horrible stuff. It meant, meant Especially if you're not psychotic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 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 it messes your insides up, causes constipation. You can't go out in the sun. Well, you've got to be covered up because the sun, it reacts with this medication. And you get very burnt very quickly. So lots of lots of things. And I lived, I, I felt like a zombie. Yeah. So school was really difficult. I mean, I was 17 before I started the meds, but the, those last two years of high school, I didn't do well. So when I was 38, I went back to school in Australia and did year 11 and 12 with 18-year-olds um, at a high school who were terrific. They taught me how to use a computer, best thing ever. And um, uh, eventually I got through year Victoria. This is where I was, so VCE, year 11 and 12, and, and got into university. So I'm not... It's very, very, very easy not to notice when a person's behaviour is different, not to look beyond to try to see who they are. And I think the person who I am was certainly missed. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about the story of how you uncovered some of the actual differences that you had, I mean, through the experience of, of being a parent. Absolutely. I was a mum to four kids and they're all very unique Young people, my 19-year-old, my middle, the second from last son was killed at 19. But the three of them that are left, all very unique individuals. And I, the younger boy, I really battled with in particular because his behaviour was, well, not, not really like mine because we had different personalities, but there were elements to, uh, to what was happening for him. So eventually, at the age of 12, we got him assessed. But a couple of months before he was assessed... I was talking with my psychiatrist and telling him that I, I really didn't think I was schizophrenic. He seemed to think that there might be something in that, so he organised for me to spend... He referred me to the Monash Medical Centre, where I spent the day, half a day, with a team there with Larry, um, Dr Larry Bartok and team, and, and they actually gave me an assessment that said I had a sort of a strange term, sort of high-functioning autism. I wouldn't use high-functioning these days. But they did, and I recognised this was what was going on for my son. So a couple of months later, Timmy got diagnosed as well. And, um, 
eventually all the children <laughs> ended up with a, an assessment for autism and ADHD. What was it like then? I mean, you, you're talking about a time that's like a generation before, you know, people, some people who've got autistic kids, you know, or are autistic themselves, like my, my son is autistic. You know, we've had an experience with a system that, you know, has pros and cons, but what was it like then? Oh, Larry diagnosed Donna, Donna Williams, who, who, as I knew her, that was the name, she changed her name, but Donna Williams, and I was only perhaps the second person, adult, to be diagnosed that I was aware of, and Yen Perkis, who was then Jeanette, was diagnosed the same year, but by a different team. So, so there were no books, apart from the one Donna had written called Nobody Nowhere, which was the one I'd read, which led me to see so many things in this book. Donna talked about talking with an American accent when she was a child, which is exactly what I did, because we didn't have TV until I was eight, but once we did, I, I mirrored the accents from, from the, um, the cartoons that I was watching, and, and so many other things that Donna talked about. I kept thinking, that's me, that's me, that's me, and it was my son. So, yeah, uh, it was quite an experience, but where to go with this? What do you do about it? I remember walking out of the office thinking, oh, I thought they were going to tell me I'd I was a product of an emotionally broken home, you know, which is a daft thing. My home was not broken. It's a strange expression, but it, the parents divorced. So for some reason they call that coming from a broken home. It does not make sense. But anyway, yeah, where do you do? What do you, what does this mean? I had no idea. The only model in my head at that time was Rain Man. And I didn't oh. count matches. I didn't buy Target underwear. Not a big well, gambler? No, 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 no. <laughs> Can't do numbers. Yeah, yeah. So what did you do? So when I, I went home, I didn't have a report. It took six months to get an official written report, and no one would believe me. My family, my the then husband, certainly didn't. And when Tim got his diagnosis, they still didn't really believe it. They just thought that as a parent I was, I don't know, I can't say what people thought, but it appeared not to be taken seriously and therefore not accommodated. No. And it still took another, it was either one or two years, hard to remember for me now, but before the psychiatrist would take me off my antipsychotic medications. Oh. Because, um, I mean, you know, he did suspect there was something else going on for me, but just in case, he'd been on these since you were 17, and, um, and when you're on antipsychotic medications, you've got to come off them really slowly. You need to take a month or longer to come off. And I gave up. I just, I didn't know about those things. I just stopped, stopped taking them. Which is not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't do that. <laughs> no, not a good idea. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't do that. It's very important. It can cause a lot of damage. As I'm an epileptic, and I've got medications for that, and I've got medications for other things, and all of those things have to be balanced and under GP, you know, especially. Yeah. And so, I mean, my understanding is, so you, you, you know, at the time you were a mum, you were trying to advocate for your children who had who definitely were beautifully different right and they needed to be taken seriously with their difference you were finding it in yourself where did that take you in terms of what you wanted to do in the world it, it was fascinating we'd go to church and the people on the road we sat down and would get up and move because my kids <laughs> they don't sit well when they were young they didn't sit and color in on the on the ground around your feet during the service um i couldn't contain them keep them still so we had all sorts of things that they could do but that was not it wasn't tolerated yeah. so a child that needs to sit and fidget 
yeah. you know, you can keep them still, as in in the same place, if they've got something in their hand to play with. But that was not not done. So, and going to the school, I, I wrote books with picture stories in to help illustrate some of the things that I wanted for the teacher to put into place for my son. So I'd sit on in on his reading sessions and stuff. He wouldn't be still, and it, it wasn't tolerated as such because people didn't understand. We all have different learning styles, and yeah. some kids learn on the move. You know, uh, they're, they're kinesthetic learners. They need to be on the go. Mm. And others have to fiddle with something. Some kids uh, are really good with visuals, but a lot of us are not. And they might be listening even if they're not making eye contact. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, eye contact thing, that's a, a bizarre thing. I remember we were given contact as a kid. To, we had to cover our exercise books to keep them clean. And the first time a teacher said that to me about... She was explaining to another teacher about me. I was then Wendy. Wendy doesn't have good eye contact. Don't take it too seriously. She's probably listening. And I was freaked out, I tell you. Why would you put contact over your eyes? You'd never be able to see at all then. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, it was awful. And That's I, I, terrifying. I, I ran. I ran out of that Shit. class. And, then, and it was like nobody understood because they couldn't tell what I was making of the metaphors they were using. Or they weren't metaphors particularly, but they are a little bit. And they weren't asking you. No, no, no. This was just a, a, I heard in a, uh, the conversation being passed on to the other teacher. But Wendy, got to make eye contact. What do you mean? Wow. It was very odd. So, I mean, from that time, you, you sort of doubled down on academic and university study. Tell us how these diagnoses and these changes and this awareness of what was going on led you to the, I guess, to the career that you then had? If you say to me that that's something I can't do, it's a bit like a, a red flag to a bull. I will say, watch me. So it went from being at the club, being at school with the kids, uh, my kids, and persisting. Teachers used to hide. I had an appointment and they, they wouldn't show up and I'd have to go back on the bus. I never understood why. Anyway, went from trying to get people to listen to what my own children needed to going to school to get my education finished, to going to university, because I remember being asked to speak at a conference and there were OTs, that's occupational therapists, speeches, different people there presenting, and I got to talk. They got paid and I got a bunch of flowers. And I thought, oh, well, that's very nice. I love flowers, actually. But other people said to me, but why aren't you getting paid and I remember thinking, don't be daft. You can't be paid for telling a story. You can't be paid for sharing information about, about autism, about what, what, what this is. But eventually it became, well, yes, this is my life. This is my career. This is my work. So I should be being paid. And it, it got very difficult because I'm not really... That thing about the woman not feeling like you're anything of value. And I felt guilty for, for uh, requesting money. As I said, at my own business... I went further in on with my, my education. I had this, on looking at my kids, at looking what, at what was happening for me, I had this uh, understanding that we are very tunnel-visioned people. We're very, I don't like the term black and white, but it means that the, the grey areas of, that aren't um, specifically spelled out are missed, and we're very much like that. We're very literal, etc. So the more I thought about it, the more I thought about what, what non-autistic people do is they're, they're usually much better at multitasking, even if they're not interested. Now, I can multitask, but only, only within an area of interest. So I thought, you know, we're really single-minded people. We use attention in one way. We're very, what we call mono, which means one, tropic, 
channeled. We're very monotropic. And the, the people around us that are not autistic seem to be polytropic. I, I tried to resist making jokes about parrots with, with people gossiping. I mustn't do that. It's naughty. Mm. But um, the, uh, non-autistic people seem to be, even when they're not interested, seem to be able to do and say things that are like small talk or, you know, why would you do that? I'm not interested. But they're really good at it. So uh, I talked to a friend called Bitty, Vicky Bitsicker in about 1993. We sat down at Monash University in the courtyard with a coffee and and I said to her, I think autistic people's brains are wired in a particular way to work with single focused attention. And I explained about autistic people, we don't get concepts and non-autistic people, they don't finish a concept because they've got the ending. They've got it secured in their brain. They don't even finish a sentence sometimes when I'm wondering where they're going to go next and they've moved on. They, they do something further with their attention. So I wrote down five points of what I thought was happening, shared it with Vicky, and she thought that this might be really something that was happening. Anyway, I, I called it SACA, Single Attention and Associated Cognition in Autism. So it's S-A-A, or C-A, I think. I, you know, I've not got it in front of me, so I might be spelling it wrong, but or monotropism. And I, I took this into into my learning. I went back to uni to do psychology. I tried talking to other people. I eventually wrote a book in 1998. I remember going to a conference to give this book to one of the quite famous person. This was in London at the time. I went over from Australia to London for the conference. And um, she looked at me and said, you're autistic. And I said, yes. She said, autistic people don't have insight into their lives. Oh. And I said to her, well, I didn't say anything because I was dumbfounded. That means I didn't have words to say. She took the book and turned back and carried on the conversation with the other professionals at that conference. There were about 600 people at that conference and it was a conference about autistic people as an autism conference and I thought, wow, it's an us and them. They have no idea who we are. They are not listening to autistic people. There's all these professionals making, it's just like being the female again and the, and the wife, you know, everybody else makes the decision for you. You're not allowed to make your own and it was wrong. So I, I, I set out on a path to earn credibility to be able to speak into the world of research to make a difference because that's wrong it's so wrong it's so wrong and you know like a red flag to a bull you have done that in your career and we're going to speak a little in a little bit about some of the specific transformations that you've helped create in universities in the research world around autism and the, and the importance of lived, those with lived experience leading research in that space. After that moment, you did a PhD, you've, done, you've written lots of books. What are some of the key, you know, concepts or ideas that you've injected into the space? So, you know, we have a better understanding of, of what it's like to, to, not, to not be neurotypical, to be neurodiverse, to be, to be beautifully different. Yeah, yeah. Neurodiversity means a bit like biodiversity it means everybody's neurological brain neurosystem is diverse so we're all neurodiverse but then you've got a minority of us who are neurodivergent and that means we we diverge away from the from the majority and that means we might be autistic adhd dyspraxic dyslexic uh, have a mental health issue or whatever but we 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 diverge so i needed to I thought I've got to reach people who will have the power, if you like, to put across to others. So I need to reach teachers 
I need to reach psychologists. I need to reach people who will be lecturing to others. As well as we run a, a, a parents group. We have parents come to our home every week where we shared information about what was happening and stories, lots of stories. Stories are beautiful and brilliant way to share and pass information across generations. It's really, really good. So after I got an uh, undergraduate degree in psychology, I then went on to do, I did social work. I did honours in social work. I did a, a, a two-year course in with the Open University that gives you a kind of diploma thing. Uh, sorry about the lack of formal words. And that got converted and I got my six years as, so I could register as a psychologist. So I was earning credibility in my mind to be able to speak. It was still very, very difficult. I don't hide being autistic, and it was very difficult to get that information across that um, is trustworthy, because people still had this belief that if you're autistic, you don't have insight into your own life. You lack, you lack theory of mind, they would say. And my whole PhD was putting holes into that theory. Too many people pass theory of mind tests and some of those tests aren't actually measuring theory of mind. They're measuring something called creativity. Something like a test that gives a child a sponge shape and says, what do you think that is? And the child says, a sponge shape? Uh, well, the, nor- the non-autist child might say, oh, a plane, a train. A okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, autistic people say it as it is. So, so getting that across and un- helping people build an understanding, a theory of what autism is, that is not connected to a lack of theory of mind, that is not about missing out, you know, central coherence, missing out the bigger picture. We do miss out the bigger picture, except for when we're interested. And again, it comes back to that detailed approach via our passion that we'll know everything about mm. the dinosaurs, the, the, the uh, electricity, water, uh, uh, a whole heap of things. Um, brilliant at playing chess or whatever can wash a car i tell you make it shine not a spot on it whatever that person's passion is can can be useful and contribute to society we're not people who just hang us on and and are on social welfare far too many people are who could be working but getting that message across to an employer to trust we will turn up on time we will do a good job within the area of interest. If a child is not interested, then their brain is actually switched off. Mm. I went to um, uh, Louisville in America, and um, over a couple of years, several weeks a, a year, over a couple of years, worked with a guy called Manny Casanova, Manuel Casanova, who's the American guy who set up the brain bank in, in America. We explored the issues of, of something called gamma. In your brain, you've got theta, beta, alpha waves, and they all carry different they're, they operate at different frequency. Their their whole job is to do different things in your brain. But gamma, again, at a different frequency, takes that information from those others and puts it into the bigger picture. And sometimes I, I use a, um, an example. I say if, to a person, if you're going to bake a cake or make pancakes, I like pancakes, you've got flour, eggs, a bit of water, maybe, maybe a splash of milk. I like milk in mine. Anyway, they're all individual ingredients. Eggs do not look like flour, do not look like water. They're separate and different, vastly different. But you mix them all together into a batter. You cannot see the eggs, the flour, the water. You don't see that anymore. You see the outcome of what they make as a combination. And gamma has that kind of a job. This is really simplistic, but it it allows a person to see the bigger picture. So we did some exercises, if you like, and with some young people, measured what was happening in their brain. And uh, 
was really fascinating. The non-autistic young people, their gamma, well, you couldn't see it, as you don't see the separate ingredients of a pancake, because it was working. So you saw the outcome, not the actual activity. The brighter the colour in the brain of the images, the, the more activity you see. For autistic young people, it was like gamma was scattered. It was all over the place. This bright red um, images that we could see. So gamma was offline until they started talking about an interest. So a young person with a poster full of sharks was talking about everything he knew about sharks. It was fascinating. And um, his gamma, you couldn't see, disappeared. So it meant his interest was switching him on. His passion was taking him places that allowed him to connect. So this is really, really vital, vital information because when a young person is connected in their thinking, they're available for learning. And when researchers weren't seeing that distinctiveness, when they weren't being informed by the lived experience, by the actual life role of autistic people, they just were getting it wrong. But by by changing how research was done and by ensuring that people were with you know, autism were either part of the research and helping or, were, like you, were actually researchers. Everything there that they were understanding changed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because when you actually see, listen to, talk, walk, work with autistic people, uh, it can seem like they're only taken up with what they're interested in. And people see that as being self-centred or selfish. But what if your brain is designed in such a way that you can only think, activate, work, uh, understand stuff when you're interested. So don't take that passion away. People say, oh, he's on his iPad too much. Then if a person's into technology, you can use that. Mm. Perhaps they don't want to go for walks outside. Maybe they'll ride an exercise bike with a computer on it, as in measuring their speed and their, how many kilos they're burning. And, uh, you know, whatever is their central core interest. So, for example, when I was doing VCE and I was like 38 years old, one of my passions as a growing person has been piston engines, not, not rotaries, piston engines. And we had to do Australian history in the 1930s. I'm not interested in the 1930s. Right? I am interested in piston engines and I researched about that and discovered that in that period we had very famous female pilots who flew planes powered by piston engines. So from that starting point it led me into women were allowed to wear overalls if they were pilots men's clothing you didn't weren't allowed that before all these things changed because of this person's ability to fly a plane but that started all i, I learned all sorts of things about economy and all sorts of things about 1930s to my interest in piston engines so don't take our interests away when you take an interest away from an autistic person you're switching them off yeah and it's like they have no idea what to do yeah and then so people say oh He's just, he's just interested in that and that's all he wants to talk about. Yes. So, so use that as a vehicle to take them where you need them to go so that we can generalise our learning because we don't do it in the way you do. Our brains aren't like yours. And you know what I love, you know, having – I've got two kids, one who is who's autistic and one who is not. But you know what I found is that teaching people via their passion, <laughs> like that, that – lots of people like that. You don't just need to be autistic. You know, this is a way to rethink education as well. Totally. So, yes, we all learn better when we're interested. But what if you could only learn when you were I interested? And, yeah. and, and, this, and that is the difference. That is the difference. So writing books about – 
The Passionate Mind was a, a book written in 2011 that was a, taken on from converting the PhD thesis into an accessible book that explains to people with illustrations and poetry and things so that they can begin to understand the lives of autistic people and their children, all the way across from parents to teachers to doctors and nurses to practicing in the emergency room, practicing in, in a shop, wherever you are, if people become aware, not just of autism awareness, being aware is one thing, but then putting it into action mm. so that we, we literally bring about change right across the board. So what I'm interested in, there's like a step that sits underneath the outcomes of this research that you've that you've undertaken, which is the process of of co-production or co-design, where you know, so for our listeners, you know, where where people in a particular community, autistic people in this instance, are actually cr helping to craft the research questions and and sort of driving the research alongside researchers. It's not some lofty academic on a hill. It's 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 this engaged mutual process. Can you talk about? like some of your reflections on how that work works and maybe what when it works and when it doesn't work and like reflections on how on because I'm sure that there are going to be people interested in that process too yeah I, this is a borrowed term but that should be nothing about me without me nothing about me without me so I need to be involved autistic people anything about their lives should be involved from A to Z from from you know go to end and onwards so research isn't about what you do like at that first conference i went to in in 93 it was us and them and it was what they were doing for us to us but not with us over you yeah yeah almost. all uh, it was awful so now that dramatically changed the co-production participatory research where we're working together it's about equity it's not even about equality it's about right from the beginning we're involved in what shall we research, um, how we will research it, what that might mean, what do we need to get the outcome and how do we disseminate and put out the information at the end. And it's researched all the way through and totally co with autistic people and non-autistic people. And even the research I did with Manny in Louisville, we had two autistic people involved in that team. So it should always be like that with anybody. It should be. It's not. No. So, and also even <laughs> when enough. it, and even, yeah, yeah, no, and it's, there is a, it's a massive transformation over the last 10, 20 years. What I would wonder that, so sometimes it, it happens though, but it goes awry. Like things cannot always go perfectly. What's, what's your, any reflections on that? Yeah, there's loads because if you imagine, you know, you're one person who's single-minded working with a person whose multitasked mind is everywhere. Um, and that's another metaphor. Your mind is, stays within your head, you know. It doesn't disappear <laughs> or travel places. But, but you're working with somebody who can walk, talk, think, drink a cup of tea, remember to take out what they need for dinner the next day, know where the car's parked. I mean, so many things all at once. We're one at a time. We're people who, if I'm putting my mind to uh, a conversation or to getting a bus, or to making a meal, I, I do, everything goes into that one thing. So if someone's talking to me while I'm trying to do that, I probably can't hear them, or I can't focus on what I'm doing. I can't, there's at times when I can't filter out everything that's coming at me, and there's times when I'm so engaged, I can't hear anything that's coming at me. So trying to get a team together with such diverse needs, 
we might have to if you're on zoom for example you might not have your camera on or or, or your you know you, you can't look and listen when i was at uni i had to have someone take notes for me i couldn't write and listen to a lecturer so there's a lot of very different things if you had if you were working with somebody in a wheelchair or somebody who was visually challenged um visually impaired or or hearing impaired you can accommodate their differences more easily it would seem because you see them whereas uh, autism is like a hidden situation a hidden system of thinking processing experiencing that is not conveyed to another person by looking on the outside of me sometimes people would look and say oh that oh oh you know he's gone he's that vacant look in his eyes or whatever i've I mean, there's nothing vacant about where i am i tell you but i can't tell them i can't let them know so there's all these things uh, ordinary research has deadlines research grants you've got to meet this you've got to meet that you've got to have it all in writing and as autistic people that's very hard to fit into those sort of boundaries so it can get really difficult so just we're heading towards the end i've got one more question about i would love you to reflect on which is you've had a life rich with identity a multifaceted powerful identity you know and and your research is in the space of autism which is a you know neurodivergence which is a very powerful identity you've just described something that can be seen as invisible although it's <laughs> it's always present i was wondering if you could just share some of your thoughts about the idea of identity or difference whatever frame and what it means to to you yeah oh, it's huge and and it's kind of inward so as autistic people to be able to survive in the world a lot of autistic people have masked and um covered um camouflaged it, not even knowingly sometimes to keep themselves safe to be able to get um friends or a job this kind of thing and i think for such a long time i lived with a lot of not masking cuz i don't think i've been very good at that but sensory things so noises are too loud if you think of a single file single channel then even senses are going to be heightened or lessened so lights are too bright feeling touch is really too difficult so uh, you know how long do you kiss your, your your wife for well as brief as possible please otherwise you, you, your your lips begin to buzz you know but trying to explain all these things can be quite difficult so i over time also as part of my identity came to understand that i'm not female but but uh, i mean and some autistic kids 3 and 4 year olds already know this they know that they're not the gender they were assigned at birth um but if you look on the outside just like you can't see autism you can't see identity it's not something we wear sometimes people will power dress cuz they're professional and people say oh yeah they're a business person oh he's a lawyer tell by what he wears or but you identity is very much hidden uh, part of who we are and we we put on these outside shows for the society that we live in but gender identity like for me i thought that um i i didn't like breasts but i uh, and i didn't have anything to do with them as a woman <laughs> as such i thought it was a sensory thing periods and and menstruation i mean a sensory thing the smell the mess sorry to be so graphic but um and i'm sure nobody likes it as a female but as a autistic female that was actually male this was a nightmare and i wished to hide myself away and 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 actually refused to acknowledge them so i've been sent home from school as a kid because there's blood all over my school c- clothes over my school uniform that because i'm not going to do anything about it cuz it's not happening and people just assumed like i assumed over time it was a sensory thing and i think this is one of the reasons autistic people are are thought to they can't know about gender 
it might be a special interest, it might be a sensory thing, we better not take them too seriously. Wrong thinking. Please, please, please take us seriously. Identity needs time to unravel. It's taken me a long time. But you need to listen to us so that I can get the support I need in sorting out what is a sensory thing, what is an interest, what is an identity thing. Everybody takes time. Yeah. And, and we change our knowledge of identity over, over many times as, throughout our lives. You know, we might start off mucking out stables and end up working in, in, a, in, a, in an office. Mm. Yeah, anyway, sorry. I'm... No, it's, it, I, I just think that it's, there's so much complexity. It's, it's not like it's an essentialised one blob. It's something that changes over time. It's something that has lots of different elements to it that everyone's identity is quite distinct. I think this. I think it powerfully speaks into converse. You know, I feel like the world's talking about identity at the moment, and that and your experience speaks a lot to that world. Absolutely. And I was talking to three kids on Zoom in an English school a couple of evenings ago, who were who are trans young people, maybe around thirteen or fourteen. And uh, when I mentioned hormone blockers, they looked at me, what's that? And I'm thinking, you guys are already going through puberty and no one is listening to your needs as trans people. Um, and I said, you know, hormone blockers will stop puberty happening. They buy time for everybody and we all need time. But if, you're, if you can stop, imagine if you're... I know I'm jumping around a bit, but if imagine without leaving my chair. If imagine if you are, you know, you're male, but you're in a female body, and you're going to have a period, you're going to menstruate. Can you imagine a, a boy having a menstruating? I mean, that is awful. Can you imagine being a boy, and you know you're a girl, and your voice changes? People mm. use the term; they say the voice breaks, doesn't break. A really strange term. Your, your vocal cords thicken and it changes the tone and, and your voice goes down a bit. So you no longer are the female sounding that you know you are. You're male sounding, which is not who you are. And you've got a penis. And I mean, what do you do with that? I, I've had young people say, I thought I'd cut it off, then I'd be, I'd be a real woman then, you know. Or, it's, it's terrible stuff. Puberty for trans kids is a nightmare. And, and they're not being recognised. So autistic kids need recognition too. Give us all time to discover who we are. And if we are not the gender we were assigned at birth, walk with us to uncover it. Don't be scared. It's more scary. Yeah. And, and the suicide rate, 40%. And, awful. And you're saying trust people. Trust people. Trust people. Trust their experience. Trust what they're saying. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. It's where you, where you started at this interview. I just want to be understood. Yeah, nice is the wrong word. That's too... Needed. It's... Totally, Dignified. Totally necessary, yes. Listen to us. Yeah. Final question. Okay, so you've had a lifetime of making change in this space, right? You've done so many different things to, to, to ensure that your identity and experience is recognised and heard and more that, you know, and not just you, that others like you, others, autistic people have had a, a voice in helping to make make things more accommodating of their interests where they don't have to just conform to someone else's expectations. There's heaps of new change makers coming through, right? Absolutely. What piece of advice do you have for them about what their lives could be in this space? Oh dear, it's hard to say one piece of advice, but hang in there, don't give up, don't let people tread down your enthusiasm. 
if you go up through one direction, that door closes, you try another. Please don't give up because we're all dependent on those that are coming after us to keep going and not to give up. Otherwise, change will never happen. Thank you, Wen. You've shown so much and I hope that those who are listening to this program take deep inspiration from the work that you've done. I know I do. Okay, thank you. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. You can find out more about Wen's work and his books on his website. It's www.buildsomethingpositive.com backslash when and when is spelt with two ends. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walkerup. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. You can see us on Twitter at Changemakers99 and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemakers.